Thank you very much. I'm very pleased to be presenting here today. As you can see, the title of my presentation is How to Protect Your Newborn from Neonatal Death, Spirits and Infant Feeling Practices in the Gambia. Um, I'm just going to talk a little bit about who we are um, and the context of the study. So we work at the Institute of Tropical <laughs> Medicine and we're a team of medical anthropologists or social scientists who do the um, the kind of they call it the human behavioral side of medical research. So anything that epidemiologists and doctors don't understand that has to do with local practices or decisions that people make for um, you know to do with health seeking behavior. This is what we research, and we work in a number of places. Um, so particularly, we work in the Gambia uh, with a medical research council. And we also work in Tanzania, Cambodia, Vietnam. But the, the, uh, this project that, um, so this particular study that I'm going to talk about today was set in the Gambia. And um, so the data is collected, or, or su- the, the collection of the data is supervised by me and the PhD student Susan, who also works on malaria and pregnancy. Um, yeah, that's it. So. This is um, a picture of our team. Yeah, you see... So these are all the field workers we work with. We, but they all work on different projects. So some of the people work it on um, malaria, and pre- malaria and pregnancy or um, asymptomatic malaria, perceptions of asymptomatic malaria carriage. But there's also two neonatal field workers. And this is Susan here who works on the, on the project. And... The way we work is very ethnographic, so we um, go to the villages and spend sleep in the villages for a couple of days, spend a lot of time chatting, talking to the people, but it all has to be, the data has to be presented in a very public health kind of way that makes it relevant to um, epidemi- the epidemiologists who we work with and who are funding the, the projects. So this particular study is called the Neonate Study. And um, so it's an anthropological study in collaboration with the MRC in the Gambia, the um, Department of Child Survival. And the head of the Department of, Ch- of the Unit of Child Survival is Steve Howie, and Anna Rocker was also very interested because um, so what they are doing a lot, they do a lot of kind of medical research on neonatal sepsis in the early neonatal phase and in the late neonatal phase, which mainly takes place in the hospital setting. So they have, for example, they test, um, you know, the effect of antibiotics or vaccinations and different kinds of things. But all of this happens, of course, in the hospital setting, in places where people actually go to the hospital and look for for childcare. You know, they actually look for um, biomedical treatment whereas they have absolutely no idea whatsoever what happens in the villages and places that are a bit further away from the hospitals and how people look after, you know, how the birthing practices, what happens at home, what happens if if there are any complications or anything. They really do not know anything about uh, any of these things, so they were interested in, in collaborating with us on this. And just a little bit more about the context of their research. So... You have the Millennium Development. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I've got a, the Millennium Development Goal Number Four: the reduction of child mortality. 
So over the last two decades, the greatest reduction in child mortality has occurred in children older than a month. Um, but the current challenge is to reduce neonatal mortality. And um, so neonatal mortality in sub-Saharan Africa is estimated around 44 deaths per 1,000 live births. Uh, in contrast to Europe, in Europe we have about 11 deaths per 1,000 um, live births. Um, and um, so Liu et al. in a very recent paper that was published in October 2014 um, in, in this paper it's, in The Lancet it's reported that 44% of deaths under 5 occur in the neonatal period and the leading causes of neonatal deaths are preterm birth complications intrapartum related complications and neonatal sepsis meningitis and other infections. So in 2013, 51.8% of children under the age of five died of infectious causes like pneumonia, diarrhea and malaria. So just a little bit about the, the context in which the MRC is trying to reduce child mortality and why they are trying to understand what happens outside of the hospital context, so the, um, in the, in the, they call it community settings, so in the, in the rural areas. Um, so understanding neonatal sepsis um, clinically I'm just going to talk a little bit about these bacteria because I think it's really interesting um, so you have okay, so you have early onset sepsis which is early onset sepsis happens between if a baby dies um, between day one and day seven and it's commonly caused by uh, streptococcus GBS, Staphylococcus aureus, and Escherichia coli. I don't know if any of you are doctors, you know how to actually pronounce these bacteria, because I, I might be wrong. Um, so the transmission of these bacteria often happens in um, intrapartum. So while, if there's any complications during the birth, for example, you know, the birth is delayed, or, or there's meconium in the... Uh, anything like that. So, so these are or risk factors for uh, the transmission of, of these bacteria. And um, so one of them, Staphylococcus aureus, is carried approximately by 30% of people, but it's also carried by animals. And Escheria coli is found in the gut and can be transmitted through poor toilet hygiene, and in particular through <coughs> inadequate hand-washing practices. So, for example, the midwife didn't wash her hands properly after going to the toilet or her child had diarrhea and she was cleaning her child's bottom and then she assists, you know, she helps a woman uh, give birth. And So these are all kind of risk factors that could lead to um, transmission. But then you also have, of course, the immunity. So if the baby has immune, a newborn baby has immunity, it might be able to fight off uh, these bacteria but if it doesn't, if the baby doesn't have the immunity or is weak or is low birth weight or early, you know, born too early, then these are all um, different things that can affect the um, uh, development of sepsis. So late neonatal sepsis is caused. One of the one of the things that can cause is Streptococcus pneumonia, and the carriage of this bacteria is very high. It's up to 90% in infants in the Gambia. A lot of the Medical Research Council's research is actually on this Streptococcus pneumonia bacteria. And this bacteria is often transmitted by, um, 
you know, through coughing, kissing, um, this kind of thing. So it's, it's everywhere. It's very prevalent. So what do... Um, but the thing people... So these are all the things that are very well known and that are very well researched, but there are a lot of things that people don't understand, such as, I've, as I've already said, birthing and childcare practices in the neonatal phase that may represent risk factors and... Um, also infant feeding practices, when are newborns fed and are they fed anything else apart from, um, uh, apart from breast milk um, in, in the early neonatal phase. Uh, so the methods we were using for this study were um, participant observations, informal conversations and interviews. The number of interviews we've done in the community setting are about 62 interviews and 123 interviews in the suburban setting. Now, the, in the suburban setting, we haven't actually had a chance to analyse the data, but I was very involved in the collection of the um, data in the, in the rural areas, so this is what I'm going to talk about today. So that's the data that I'm going to be presenting here today. OK, so we've got risk. We've talked about risk factors. Now we're going to talk about um, protection. How do locals actually protect themselves from the risk of neonatal um, death or problems? So first of all, um, in the Gambia, most people believe, um, distinguish between two different kinds of diseases. So when people, for example, have a cold or they have malaria and they go to the hospital and they are given, at the hospital they're given treatment by... Um, by the doctor and the treatment works this uh, illness is called Kurankeso in Mandinka so it's kind of a they believe that it's caused by a microorganism inside the body that's detectable by biomedicine but the other um, so the other cause of sickness is called Minkesa Sande in Mandinka and it's um, believed to be a disease that is caused by something that's outside the body and that nobody really has an explanation for. So if you're sick and you go to the doctor and the doctor doesn't know what you've got or he prescribes treatment and the treatment's not working, you know, you're still sick or the child dies or an, even an adult who's got malaria think, thinks I've got malaria and, goes, and then the treatment's not working, this is perceived to be um, caused by a factor outside the body, uh, particularly caused by foul wind. So they, you know... Locals believe that the kind of the blowing wind is very dangerous to locals and particularly to vulnerable people because this is how you get um, how how you get sick. Um, so for pregnant women now, so I'm just going to talk first of all about uh, what dangers there are during pregnancy and what kind of risk what people locals perceive to be risk factors and um, things that are, are dangerous for a pregnant woman and for the newborn, for the baby, the unborn baby. Um, okay, so I've got some examples. Um, so most, inform- most of our informants said that child's health started in the mother's womb and it was important that the mother didn't go to certain places and protected herself from evil by dressing well. So a woman has to be... Um, dressed very, make sure that she's dressed very well during pregnancy, particularly when she goes outside. So it's not acceptable for a 
a, a pregnant woman or not recommended for a pregnant woman to go onto the compound without having her head covered or having without having your shoulders covered or your, or the breasts exposed or the stomach. You know, this kind of thing is perceived to be very dangerous because of uh, spirits and foul wind that could attack the woman. So as, for example, for a woman who's not pregnant or breastfeeding, it's absolutely fine to be walking around outside without your head covered if there are no visitors on the compound or go out outside topless. This is really not, recomm- you know, it's perceived to be very dangerous for a, a pregnant woman. And it's also recommended to be dangerous for pregnant women to go to, the, to some places in the bush where um, different supernatural creatures are believed to live because they will also harm the um, baby. So I've got some examples of this here from interviews. Uh, so this interview was, uh, took place in a Fula village on the north bank of the Gambia in a village called Saresidi. And um, so Saresidi was quite far away from the main road. It takes a, to drive there, it takes about 45 minutes. And the, most of the houses are mud brick <coughs> with, covered by countries. I've actually got a, a photo. So this was Saresidi here. So it's a Fulani village. Um, and yeah, there was actually no, there were no pit latrines in the village at all. There was actually only one pit latrine in the compound we were staying on which had been dug out for an MRC field worker who was going to stay in the village for two years. And he said, I'm not going to stay here unless I've got a proper toilet. And everyone else in the village just goes to the, to the bush if they, if, uh, they um, need to. So, um, yeah, that's it. Um, now, now to come to the interview. So I ask, are there things that a pregnant woman shouldn't eat or places she shouldn't go to or things she shouldn't do? And Salamata says, um, sometimes a pregnant woman would not eat chere until she delivers. Chere is local millet, so that's a very common local dish. Um, but there's no, uh, there are no, there's no taboo that says that a pregnant woman should not eat any of these types of food. For us, we only go to the rice fields. We, we don't go to the bush. We believe that there are evil creatures or jinn in the bush. And when a pregnant woman steps on the paths of these evil creatures, it can turn your baby in your womb and make it become abnormal. If that happens, you would have to go to the hospital. If they cannot cure your baby, then you go, have to go to the marabous or traditional healers who would help and cure the baby. So when babies are not normal, is it always the curse of a jinnah or a kondoron? Kondoron are dwarfs, but I'll talk about the different types of uh, supernatural creatures in a minute. So she replies, when a baby is born and it is abnormal, it has been cursed by a jinnah or some other creatures in the forest. If you see reptiles like chameleons or snakes, they can easily change your baby. And that is why pregnant women are strictly advised not to be going to the bush during pregnancy. Um, so Salamata was 22 years old when we um, interviewed her and she was looking after um, a baby that was about a month old. And she um, told us that she'd given birth on a horse cart on the way to the health centre between two villages near some bushes. And while she was giving birth, she didn't get off the horse cart because she thought it was dangerous. She just So she gave birth on the horse cart and then wrapped the baby in, uh, in the cloth and the afterbirth as well. And uh, then 
went home because it was getting dark and she, was, she, she said she was feeling no pain, so no particular um, pain. So as soon as she arrived home, uh, a woman came to cut the cord and once Salamata had taken a bath herself and the baby had been bathed, she, she breastfed the baby. So she actually waited, she gave birth somewhere in the middle of nowhere while it was getting dark and then she waited all, you know, until she got home before giving the baby the very first breastfeed. Um, and Salimata said that she lost three children um, and two of them actually passed away around the age of five because they helped her pound millet before they died and one of them died when, when it was a, still a baby. So it's quite a dramatic... I, f- I felt kind of, while I was rereading this data, I thought this was quite dramatic, the idea that she'd given birth to this baby in her, you know, the most recent one in the bush, and she has... There's, you know, a lot of fear about what... Actually, you know, that the bush is full of these creatures that can, can harm babies. Um, so anyway, just to come on to another example. Um, so this is a traditional birth attendant who lived in a North Bank village called Yalalba. And she was a Bambara woman who'd been trained by the government um, as a birth attendant. And so she says, well, so we, I asked her, are there any... F- oh, no, just a sec, where am I? Yeah. So do women fear jinnah affecting babies or women during labour? And she says, fear of jinnah? No, not here. Once there was a baby delivered to me that later on turned out to be a jinni. It afterwards changed appearance. A week after the delivery, the baby was so beautiful, but then I was called and told that the baby had changed colour to yellowish. So I thought it was yellow fever, so I administered some medications, but to no avail. I took them to Farafeni Major Hospital, and those people also did their best for more than a month, but there was no improvement, so they were discharged. On the whole, this baby turned out to be a bush creature. And Keba, the, the field worker, he, um, he says, turned to a jinnah. Yes, this child lived with a mother for two good years, but, couldn't ma- but she couldn't manage anything at all. You know, that one was not a human being. Yes, then God took it from the mother one day. Wallahi. Was it the way that it appeared to you that made you think it was a bush animal? Yes, the way it appeared, that's it. Because... It did not show any signs of being a human being. That's why people thought it, it turned to a bush animal or a beast. Um, so children, as you can see from these two examples, children that somehow seem to be abnormal after the birth or children that are born with disabilities or turn out to be developmentally disabled or mentally unstable later on are believed to have been afflicted by supernatural creatures in the mother's womb. Um, and there's, there was an example of this for example the compound we stayed on in Sara Sidi there was a girl who was developmentally disabled and she often hugged people when, um, when she saw them you know she started hugging strangers and, and there were a couple of boys who kept pulling her away from, uh, from these situations because it was perceived to be inappropriate and um, and then she kept screaming because she didn't want to be pulled away from these people. So one day we, were, we interviewed a marabou, who's a kind of like a, a local healer or a local um, person who's believed to have a lot of spiritual power. And he said, when he's, so the, we, we actually we were sitting there observing the girl um, 
talking to somebody and she was pulled away by the boys and she started screaming. And she, the Marabu said, oh, poor soul, the jinn are giving her a hard time. And he explained to us that his, her father had been a powerful Marabu who'd made a pact with spirits, but, but it had gone wrong, so it affected the, the girl. So the girl was born with disabilities as a result of this pact that the, her father had made with the, with the spirits. Um, yeah, so I'm just going to talk a little bit more about uh, different kinds of spirits. These are some um, that are believed to be in the bush that you can come across um, in different parts of the of the bush that people are afraid of. So jinn are non-human spirit creatures that are believed to inhabit the world alongside human beings, and people believe in their existence. Um, Everybody believes that these jinn exist. It's perceived, you know, it's absolutely taken for granted that um, jinn are around everywhere. And one of the reasons for this could be that they're written about in the Quran. Um, so jinn are said to be invisible under normal circumstances, and they don't do any harm to anybody. They just live beside us. But there are some bad jinn that can affect, afflict human beings, causing aggressive behavior, madness sickness or death by attacking a person through wind or in, in unsafe places. And they're particularly believed to live in trees, um, but they can attack, a, uh, they particularly attack vulnerable uh, people like pregnant women walking through their territory. So the other um, thing that's a bit dangerous to pregnant women is witchcraft. So whereas, whereas jinn are non-human spirits, um, so they are called in, in, in Fula and in Mandinka, they're called Boa or Sukunyabe, uh, which means witch. So the Gambians translate it as witch or witchcraft. And uh, they metaphorically eat other human beings. Um, and they possess the quality that makes them addicted to consuming, to spiritually consuming other human beings by sucking out their life force until they get very sick and die. So the symptoms someone experiences when being attacked by a witch tends to be mainly described as rib pain or some kind of stomach um, pain. And then the person just gradually gets weaker and, and, and dies. Uh, most res respondents said that they didn't actually know how witches um, eat people, but there are some marabouts who gave us uh, some more details about that. And the other creature that's... Um, believed to harm unborn babies is uh, called Kondoron or Ngote in, in Mandinka or in Fula uh, which they translate into English as dwarf so they believe that dwarfs live in the bush and in the, for, you know, in the forest uh, they live there with their families and dwarfs are believed to be small spirit creatures with long beards and a foot twisted backwards and there's many different stories about dwarfs. I mean, we came across this idea of dwarfs a lot, and um, people have very different views about whether these dwarfs are good or bad. Uh, a lot of people believe that they can actually make, bring, give you a lot of fortune. So if you come across a dwarf in the bush, it can make you very wealthy, but it can also bring devastation over your family if, if they are disrespected. So... The thi so most informants seem to agree that dwarfs, if a dwarf offers you, for example, a calabash full of milk or gold or a pot of gold, 
then you mustn't take it immediately. You've got to, the dwarf has to offer it to you three times, and after the third time, if he still keeps offering the same thing to you over and over again, then you can take it, and then you will become rich as a result of that. But um, so, um, but they can also do other things. For example, they're believed to cause. Um, some people said that they'd. Um, take stolen their children from the village for two weeks and then brought them back circumcised. So if children disappeared, people always often believe that it was because of dwarfs. And um, they also believe to cause a common eye disease by flicking a fingernail in your eye. Um, and some, yeah, so that's it. And they also can ca- cause harm to unborn babies. So women have to be careful not to to pregnant women are uh, advised not to go to the bush. Um, okay, so now I'm going to come on to neonates. Um, oh, where are we? Sorry. Sorry, oh, I didn't, didn't show you that uh, for the whole... Okay. Uh, so this is these are pictures of the, um, the, the environment. <laughs> Just different pictures, so tree, yeah, um, all right, potential harm. Okay, let me just see, yeah. So as in most West African contexts, most individuals protect themselves against evil afflictions sent by ill-meaning individuals or spirits or other supernatural creatures. And one of the best ways or most recommended ways of protecting yourself is by praying kind of daily prayer especially for pregnant women they are advised to um, that this is one of the best protections against harm done to the baby but people also carry amulets on their bodies to uh, for protection and these amulets um, they are uh, a Quranic verse written on a piece of paper that is then sewn into a leather amulet and is carried on the body or around the neck of the baby. So, for example, I've got a picture somewhere here. So, oh, sorry, yeah. So these are um, examples of amulets that small babies carry for the protection against um, evil. Um, yeah. So just come on to the neonatal phase. Oh yeah. So one of the, another way of protecting your yourself is the Marabou, the Quranic scholar, he writes uh, a verse on one of these blackboards, and then he it's wiped off with a cloth and put into a bottle of water with a bit of perfume, and then people wash their bodies for protection against spirits. Um, so in the neonatal phase. These supernatural creatures are also believed the main cause of death or severe sickness. And neonates are given a number of things to ingest before the first feed in order to protect them and prevent developmental problems from appearing later on in life. So a number of informants told us that babies were given a Quranic potion before the first breastfeed to dispel spirits. And these potions are done like other protections, so it's done... Uh, as I've just said, you, you write something like a chronic verse written on the blackboard, wiped off, put into a bottle of water with perfume, and this is given to the baby before the very first breastfeed. Or if they don't have a blackboard, they write it on a piece of paper, 
and put the piece of paper into a bottle of water with a bit of perfume in, and then um, it's given to the baby before the first feed. So an example... Um, so she's responding to a question on what happens immediately after the birth. Um, when, the baby, when the child is born, the umbilical cord is cut. Then the child is washed, wrapped in a cloth, given the concoction, and then it's put on the breast. And I ask, what if the concoction from the marabou is not ready? When the marabou is not there, the one next to the marabou prepares it. There are always people who can write verses from the Quran. And how much of the potion is given to the baby? It's not much. The baby needs to take it only twice on the day it's born. So do they put anything else in the baby's mouth? Yes, they do wash the baby's mouth with coconut juice to remove the undertongue of the baby. If not, it's believed that when the baby grows up, he or she will not be able to speak. Um, so this is another thing that I'm going to come on to now, uh, is what is given to the baby. So a number of babies were given this Quranic potion before the first feed to dispel spirits. Um, but women also reported that babies' lips and tongue were rubbed with chewed kola nut before the very first breastfeed. And it's believed that um, this will help the child's speech later on in life and prevent it from being mute or having speech problems. And some people said that speech is also key to being appreciated by others in life and the practice will help the baby become a good orator. Um, and we also actually came across a lot of people smearing um, salt under the uh, neonate's tongue to um, get rid of, uh, to make sure that the baby's not tongue-tied before the first breastfeed. And some people also reported that they used to give the, uh, the, the newborns goat's milk or cow's milk but they often said that this is something that they weren't really practicing anymore. That used to be done in the past, but nowadays with public health messages, they've, they know that they should only be feeding the baby breast milk. But these anyway, kola nut and salt rubbed under the tongue, that was still very common, and also the Quranic potion uh, was also still very common. Okay, so that's another um, interview with a midwife, so I said, can you explain the first two days of life and how the breastfeeding starts? Because when one delivers the first attempt to breastfeed, you have this... Oh, is that the one? Sorry. So you have uh, water coming out, but then after two days, a lot of milk shoots into the breast. Can you explain how it starts? Does the woman start feeding straight away, or does she wait? And she says, I encourage the immediate use of the breast because it's advised that no one should give the newborn baby any water, spiritual water, honey or hot water. Now when a woman delivers, before she has taken a bath, the husband will kill a cock to be cooked for her. This will encourage the coming of the breast milk. And can, can you tell me about the feeding? Does it happen that the baby has to be fed every hour or is it given to somebody else to feed first of all? That's a foregone practice. That's not happening now because the government has banned the use of holy water, hot water and so on. It's only breastfeeding. Do you traditionally give the baby food like cola nut or sugar? Because I read that some people put cola nut, nut on the newborn's mouth, in the newborn's mouth or something like that. Is there anything else that you usually do? Yes, at first they do that to remove the undercord of the tongue by chewing a white cola nut and applying that juice by rubbing it there. 
It is intended for the clarity of speech. So, okay, that was uh, the example. So in contrast to recommendations made by biomedical doctors in terms of the importance of breastfeeding the baby immediately after birth and, and skin contact, this is often delayed in the Gambia by a number of practices. Uh, so it could be delayed by if the woman is too far from home or um, the cutting of the cord or the Quranic potion and the, or the other things that have to be rubbed under the tongue. And one woman who we interviewed in an urban area said that she didn't breastfeed her baby for 12 hours because first she had a bath and when she was ready to breastfeed the baby, the baby was uh, sleeping. And um, so it's not considered to be important to, to, feed the breast, uh, to breastfeed the baby straight after the birth because this can be delayed. So now I'm going to um, talk about uh, newborns. Um, So babies are kept inside the house for the first seven days until the naming ceremony because they're believed to be particularly vulnerable to spirits and foul wind. And the naming ceremony follows uh, an Islamic recommendation, um, but it differs among different ethnic groups in Senegambia on how exactly they perform this naming ceremony. But the, during the naming ceremony, the baby is given a name of the book um, and blessed by the imam and the baby's head is also shaved for the first time the family slaughters a goat or a chicken whatever they can afford in, in honour of the baby and they, uh, they prepare a meal and the Jola for example who live in the Gambra in, northern, in southern Senegal there's, um, for them the naming ceremony is a very big joyful event involving a lot of dancing and singing um, but it very much depends on the family's background and, and their, their means. Um, uh, so, but the reception of the Islamic name, the prayers and the chasing away of uh, spirits through women singing and dancing is believed to protect the baby from supernatural creatures uh, taking away its life. So the baby's ready, after the naming ceremony, the baby's ready to go into the outside world and it's no longer... Um, it no longer needs to be protected from these supernatural creatures in the sense that it no longer needs to stay inside the house. Um, so from, the day, from day seven, the day of the naming ceremony, the baby's often tied on a small girl's back, first of all, because an adult woman's back is thought to be too big, so they wait until the baby's big enough before they're tied on, a, on an adult woman's back. But there's no, there are no longer any taboos in terms of places that a baby shouldn't go to. So again, this is an uh, in a interview extract here. Um, so can you take the newborn baby outside before seven days? And she says, normally after the delivery for the first days, the baby can't go out, but the mothers can go out if they wish. The baby comes out after one week. Why is the baby confined to the house? Is it because of sukunyab or witchcraft? The reason why the baby is confined inside the room is for the safety of the baby, like bad air. I don't know how it comes, but you have to cover the baby to protect the baby from bad air. Um, so that's it. So, yes. Um, so if you're in a public health audience, you'd now be 
um, expecting a recommendation, a very concrete recommendation from me as to what should be done to to change practices. And um, but as an anthropologist, this is very. Um, it's actually nice to talking to an anthropological audience where you don't always have to make uh, these recommendations. But just to recap in terms of the um, context of the Millennium Development Goals of um, that medical researchers are trying to find ways of reducing child mortality, uh, which is five, four times high in sub-Saharan Africa, and more than half of the under five deaths are caused by infections. So I've explained... Um, the different practices locals do to protect themselves from um, child mortality or neonatal mortality in particular and um, how also locals distinguish between uh, diseases that are caused by microorganisms and diseases that are um, perceived to be caused by supernatural factors like spirits. That's it.